but it is the small moments like it's just these small everyday moments that happen that are so joyous and to see the control put back in that person's hands for just a little bit is worth it. If you don't take anything else from this conversation today, like you have such a capacity to make such a difference in that person's existence. Even if you just see them one time, one time in the emergency department, you could be the one professional who helps put the control back in their hands for a little bit of time when cancer does nothing but take and take and take. And you have a responsibility to do that. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT. On today's episode, I'm excited to have Dr. Elise Cantu join me. She's the PT, so you're going to learn so much from her about how to approach patients with any kind of cancer diagnosis anywhere you practice, but also with consideration specific to the emergency department. You won't want to miss this. Tune in now. Welcome back to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm here today with Dr. Elise Cantu. Hello. Oh my God. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here because we're just up to no good already. I can tell that. It's true. So I think before we even talk about what we're going to talk about, I'll just warn you that if you're listening, like if you're going to be really serious, today is probably not the day to listen. No. Hands down hands down. We've already derailed the interviewing process by like 30 minutes because we were just chatting it up beforehand. And it's been a lot of silliness. So again, I like that disclaimer, Rebecca. Yeah, I think that's valid. So I I think the first thing we need to do is for you to tell people who you are. I love that. Hello, my name is Dr. Elise K. Kanthu. I am the OncoPT. So I specialize in helping people reclaim their health and wellness after a cancer diagnosis. And when I'm not doing that in my private practice, I also teach other physical therapists how to treat oncology patients confidently and competently because I recognize that I would love to impact a million patients in my lifetime, but I can get there a lot faster if I help other professionals do that in their own communities. And so that's what I've dedicated my life to doing. So you're scaling your impact. I am scaling my impact. And I didn't realize it until a few years into the process. But here I am. I think that's amazing because I think when we think about really being top of scope, that one of those things that we need to do is we need to amplify our impact. And one of the first guests we had on this podcast was Dr. Brandon Morchetti, who's a DPT and an emergency medicine physician. And oh what he does outright. So you oh might want to listen to that episode because it's cool. It. Um, but he now does like one of the other responsibilities he has is like he coordinates all the emergency medical response for like the entire state that he lives in. And he was like a, a paramedic before he was a PT and then he was a PT. And he's like, mm-hmm. what I loved about being a PT was that one-to-one care. And mm-hmm. same with being an emergency medicine physician. I felt like I was helping more people at a time. But now I'm helping hundreds of thousands of people every day. yeah. And to be able to have that impact and to take that mentality of the physical therapist and then apply that like broad spectrum. But I think your approach is probably a little bit more like broad glitter spectrum that you're like seasoning the entire profession with an oncology sparkle. 
love the glitter analogy first of all definitely the sparkle yes i do think like i think if i were to be described as like an inanimate object i would be a glitter cannon and i'm just trying to like get the glitter out to cover as much as possible and again like the annoying but also great thing about glitter because I recently, so I actually used, I think I showed you a picture of the dress. We went to a gala and it was green sparkles. And that whole night I was just shedding green everywhere. And it's been a few weeks and we still find green sparkles everywhere. And I think that's what I like. Like that's almost what I'm equating this to of like, I may not convert you now into being someone who has opened up your practice and your patient care to oncology patients, but I'm going to sit there and eventually I'm going to wear you down because the unfortunate situation is that we're seeing more and more people diagnosed with cancer every single day. I think we're expecting 2 million people to be diagnosed in the United States with cancer this next year. Hmm. Um, that is more than heart attacks and strokes combined. That's so we have, that is not sparkly, right? So this is kind of where that sparkle ends. But it is, it's just such an important part of why I do what I do because we are in no shape or capacity. Like there are enough patients for all. There are more than enough patients for all, unfortunately. And we need you. We need practitioners who are willing to treat these patients because the sad reality is if you don't, they're not getting treated, period. Yeah. I think the other thing too, like, because this podcast is for emergency PTs, they're probably like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's not me. I'm not going to be an oncology PT, but people with oncologic, oncologic issues Uh often need to access the hospital and the healthcare system through the emergency department. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you for this podcast was to figure out like, should somebody come rolling in? with an active mm-hmm. diagnosis of cancer. Cause I, yeah. I've had um, Scott Capoza on the, on the podcast in the past talking yes. about Love. how do we make sure we're not missing cancer? Right. Right. But what I would like to know from you is like, what do we do? Cause it's scary. And when I look at patients with like oncology things in their chart, I'm like, I don't even understand what's written here. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I can definitely relate to that because even sometimes I still read charts and it's like, I've never heard of this word before. So you and me, you and me both girl. So I think the first thing that we really need to get out there and it's super obvious, but it really like, we really have to start here is if you are a licensed physical therapist, you have what it takes to treat a person who has cancer. Right. And so what you really ought to be licensed. I mean, like you really, really ought to be. (laughs) I mean, that's what we're operating under, right? It's like if you are out there and you're listening to this podcast, you're either a student who's about to be a licensed professional or you are a licensed professional and you're like, Or maybe you're one of those DPTs from Lifetime Fitness that's rolling through. Oh my God. Can you believe that? That is like (laughs) taken over. I just saw a new one this morning about that too. (laughs) They can take the patients. It's fine. You know what? I'm sure they'll do. I'm sure they'll do an amazing job with the personal training. Right. With the personal training. Yeah. And again, we need those in oncology too, but I digress. Yes. Okay. You know, 
the thing that you need to know is that first and foremost, you have what it takes to treat a person who has cancer. Because what Rebecca has set us up with right now is that they already have a diagnosis. It mm -hmm. has been confirmed. This is happening. Okay. So we are not operating under a, you know, there's these vague symptoms that aren't making sense. Like, no friend, we have a confirmed diagnosis. And a lot of my patients actually do end up in the ER from time to time for this, that, and the other, um, which is not specific. Let me get a little more specific on that. Sometimes patients will have something called like a neutropenic fever. Is It's like a catch-all diagnosis if a person with cancer, especially in my area, is like feeling under the weather. That's kind of a, a, like a, a diagnosis that gets slapped on them of like, oh God, they have cancer, neutropenic fever. Now, hear me out. A lot of times in my area, that is a automatic diagnosis that doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. A lot of times these patients are already immunocompromised and they're just dealing with the stuff like the the sniffles or something and then their like their lab values are off or their vitals are off for something that's relatively innocuous like maybe it's cancer treatment side effects etc and they present to the ER with a completely different thing going on. Yes. And then it's like oh well, crap there's a whole like don't get distracted by the big C, by the cancer diagnosis, or by these kind of automatic labels that we put on patients. You have what it takes because a lot of these patients have musculoskeletal issues that we know exactly what to do with, right? So I think first and foremost, like we have to set the stage, Rebecca, we have what it takes because we know how to address the musculoskeletal impairments that these patients face, period. Yes. And, and I would say like the top three times that patients come to the ED with a cancer diagnosis when I see them. Mm -hmm. Top three reasons. Falls. Oh my God. Yes. Failure to thrive, quote unquote, failure to thrive mm -hmm. and pain. And yes. so I, I want to push back a little bit on the musculoskeletal piece that you said, because so many times I feel like they have this horrible pain that's not musculoskeletal, but we'll get called yeah. and be expected to help manage that. And I've learned like a few things that I can do for patients, whether it's positioning, mm -hmm. whether it's education, whether it's giving them like non-medication related coping strategies, but what do I do? Yeah. So let's, let's kind of zoom in on the pain for mm -hmm. a little bit, because I think that definitely is one of those like, yee. so yeah. let me ask you a question first, and then I'll kind of dive into it more. Do, from your recollection, do these patients have stage four or metastatic cancer at this point? It's usually Rebecca? metastatic. Yeah. So it's, it's like a, it's a cancer that pain that we're talking about here. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and when so you that ask us. the patient, they're clear on that. Like yeah. they've been, they've been through this rodeo enough that they're like, nope, this is not musculoskeletal, but I've actually discovered patients with metastatic cancer because their pain, if you, if you hear the history, it sounds low key musculoskeletal, but then when you examine yeah. the musculoskeletal system, you're like, nope, this is super vague and not specific and not mechanical. Yeah. Let me share an example of something very similar to yeah. what you're talking about here, Rebecca. So I had a patient and full disclosure, I've worked predominantly in outpatient, but this is a great example of someone to keep your eye on. So I had a patient, I'd seen her previously. And when I saw her previously, she was fully independent, mobile, all the things came back to me. 
she was in a wheelchair. She was pushed into my clinic by one of her sons. This was complete departure from where she was at previously. And already alarm bells are going off like, hmm, something's not making sense here. But the oncologist told me we've ruled out that this is any further metastases. This is something else going on. So I referred her to PT. I was like, great, thanks for doing that. Now we got to figure this out. So I took her through, you know, a typical, cause she was having low back pain that was radiating into her buttock and into her posterior thigh. And so I went through my, you know, evaluation, like I would think to, if this was a musculoskeletal back pain and nothing made sense, right? Anytime we shifted positions, even into laying down, which, you know, like I thought would be more comfortable, that pain just shot right up. I tried a few different things. Nothing like could elicit her pain as far as special testing, but I mean, the pain was there. And so after a while we were able to determine, you know what, this, this isn't right. And so sure enough, you know, cause we were paying attention to those little, like the sniff test, you know, something just doesn't smell right here. Sure enough, they went back and did more imaging and found out that it was indeed a further progression of her metastasis. So I think the reason I bring this up is that first and foremost, just because a person is in, in the emergency department with pain, with a cancer diagnosis, doesn't mean that we throw all these other red flags out the window, right? right. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. And that goes for even in our oncology patient population, right? If there are alarm bells, if there are red flags going off, that pa this pain is not making sense, pay attention to it. Because yeah. the likelihood is you're probably picking up on something that maybe it was in both of our cases, it was a, you know, a further progression of already metastatic disease. And so I do think we have a lot of skills to say like, mm, something's not right here. Pay attention to that. I think that's fair. I also think a lot of times that's not going to get worked out in the ED. Like, yeah. If yeah. you're medically stable and the oncology team's like, yeah, there might be something, but that doesn't need to be fixed at 4 p.m. on a random Thursday. They can follow up in clinic. Yeah. We may never see the outcome of that. So I think that's hard too, mm -hmm. but I think that's when it's important to make sure you're really communicating your findings and making appropriate referrals. Yes. And I like what you said about communicating your findings. I think we have a real opportunity, even though we may not know exactly what's causing the pain here, I can sit down and have a conversation with a patient and get very, very clear on what they're experiencing, when they're experiencing it, how they're experiencing it. And then maybe if I'm in the emergency department, that that information that I'm collecting can then be passed on when that patient finds kind of their final stop or their destination and like wherever they're going after the emergency department. And then those clinicians can make an informed decision on here's what, here's what our next steps are, because I've yes. taken a really, really good history and just kind of examination of what is going on with my patient right here, right now. Yeah. And I think also if that patient doesn't have a PT to follow up with, we mm -hmm. could fix that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So my next question for you is mm -hmm. this, this is a very common scenario. We'll have patients come in with known cancer and it's mm -hmm. progressed. And as mm -hmm. cancer does, their function goes up and down. Yep. And 
the oncology team will come down, they'll evaluate the patient. They'll be like, yeah, you know, maybe this is just a flare. Maybe this is a progression. We don't necessarily need to admit the patient to the hospital. Physical therapist, we'd like you to decide if this patient is safe to go home. And I think one of the barriers that I run into here is say, say it's a patient with a glioblastoma. Yes. Okay. Their function seems to vary wildly. And like, I will see, like, I can think of one specific patient who I've seen several times. And like, I I guess I don't know from a prognosis and plan of care perspective, is this person going to bounce back in a couple of days after some steroids? Or is this person on that like precipitous decline where I need to be recommending different things? We also sometimes Mm -hmm. are asked to help the patient and the family members decide if they're ready to try and transition to hospice. And that's hard when you don't know the patient, you don't necessarily understand the progression of their disease. Um, Sometimes it's the right choice, right? Like the oncologists are like, this really is the right choice. But from a functional perspective, we need you to help them decide inpatient, outpatient hospice, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, So those are situations where I feel like I never feel confident with what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, First of all, I can appreciate that entirely. And I'm going to full disclosure here. I have not worked with that many patients who have glioblastoma, um, but I can pass on some advice that I was given by one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Shai Sewell. Pay attention to trends. And I know, again, when mm-hmm. when patients are presenting to the emergency department, you're getting a snapshot, right? right. I Hopefully, mm-hmm we've got a little more information, you know, maybe that's from the patient themselves, from the family, the caregivers, you know, maybe from the chart. But I do recognize sometimes we are just getting a snapshot. But if you have the capability to get a little more history, again, patient, caregiver, family, even the chart, that can help you determine a little more of, is this a one-off thing? Is this something that was kind of a fluke? is this something that is continuing to happen? And not like an everyday, every week kind of situation, but that trend and watching that trend of function and these episodes can be really helpful. Um, Cause this is something again, not to equate it, but I do have patients that I've seen on the outpatient side who kind of do this, this wave of function. And you kind of have to say, is it really appropriate to continue with outpatient or do we maybe need to, especially in those, you know, later disease stages, we're working with someone who has stage four cancer. Maybe I'm not the most appropriate person for them. And so I think when you're in that situation, Rebecca, paying attention to trends, whatever information you can get out of it. And I think this is an opportunity to really sit down and have a conversation. Mm. And I think we really have to come to the table to have this conversation And really put on kind of our detective hats and do some investigating. What does the patient want? What does the family member want? But also, what is their capacity for this? Especially something like glioblastoma. So I worked with a patient previously who was on a downtrend of his function. And it got to the point where he was not appropriate for rehab. And unfortunately, he... It, it was very, very sad. So I'm just like, sorry, listener, oh, this is going to be sad. I don't think there's a happy glioblastoma story. I, yeah, there's really not a happy glioblastoma story. This I mean, patient, his, 
his cancer had progressed to the point that it was altering his mental status. And he became, he became violent um, in the home towards yeah. his family members. And that was really, really sad. Yeah. And so I have learned from that one experience of it's not necessarily a bad thing to even like be a little ahead of the game, um, maybe a little extra aware of maybe this, we may need to move into a more um, supportive care environment a little faster than maybe what I would see with some of my other diagnoses, other patient populations. But again, we won't know that until we establish with the family that having that conversation of what's going on at home. Are you able to, you know, care for this patient on your own? Do you need extra help? Do we need to bring someone into this? And so I think even establishing what's going on at home can help us, you know, maybe steer the ship a little more towards we may need to actually bring on a little extra help. You know, maybe that's they go to a facility for that or you know, maybe the the care team comes to them. But I would really, really encourage people here, have the conversation and listen to what the family's telling you, what the patient's telling you, but also what they're not telling you, which I was like, listen for what they're saying and what they're not saying. But yeah. we can really, as the movement professionals here, we can put together a picture of what is happening at home, what is not happening at home to make it ultimately a safe environment for both the patient and the caregivers, because especially in a situation like glioblastoma, I do think we have to think about that a little more than maybe we would with other diagnoses. Yeah, I think you're right. Very, it depends answer, but that is probably the best oh, I can come up with. You're such I a know. physical therapist. I know it's the worst. <laughs> I think the other thing is, and, and like the common theme. So I've been having a lot of people on the podcast who are like, specialists in their specific area, cancer rehab, yeah. attorney wellness, long COVID, like whatever the case may be. And I ask these questions, like, how do we make sure that we're not letting these patients down? And mm -hmm. I've just been like, so thrilled that the answer is the same. You talk to the patient, you figure out their goals, you figure out best ways to physically, medically support them and you move forward. And so my hope with all of these different interviews is that you realize that you can handle anything. You really and can. You can handle anything at least once. And then you get that person to the specialist that they need, right? So as just an aside to empower emergency PTs, it doesn't matter what diagnosis walks through the door. You've got this. Mm -hmm. You have all the tools. Mm -hmm. You're just going to apply them in unfamiliar ways. And that's top of scope practice for sure. Oh, oh I love that so much. Oh, my God. So yes. I think that that's right where we need to be. But now I'm going to get ask you like a hot take question. Oh, oh, my God. I'm so excited for this. Because you're going to like, I know you have just the right answer and like, you, it's going to be like salty and sparkly. I'm sure of it. What do you tell people when they say cancer patients don't need PT? It's not appropriate. You know, I asked you before we started this interview, what your explicit rating <laughs> is. Um, and I'm going to rein it in because like, if you're thinking of a four letter word right now, if I've said it, like that's, that's my first response to this. <sighs> there is no other diagnosis or medical condition that I can think of genuinely where we are so culturally conditioned to 
respond to a person who is so desperately in need of conditioning, of strengthening, of aerobic conditioning to say, oh, rest, you're fragile, right? There is no other condition I can think of. Like when, when a person has a heart attack, like when I had a family member several years ago who had a heart attack, I mean, the referral process was extremely streamlined to get them into cardiac rehab. Like there is such a well-developed process to do that. Why is it not happening in cancer? We're not here to answer that question, but like, whoa, to I bet you the, I bet, girl, how much time do you have <laughs> to that question, to that you know, what do you say to someone who's like, oh, cancer, you know, people with cancer are weak and should rest? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I say this with a full full awareness of I have worked with patients from the moment of diagnosis all the way up until they went home on hospice for the very last time. So I'm going to throw in another patient story because this is one of my favorites, and I think it illustrates this point really well. Pancreatic cancer has a remarkably poor prognosis. Like in those late stages, which most pancreatic ca- cancers are diagnosed at this point, like you you have a time limit on your life yeah. at this point. So I had a patient come to me, pancreatic cancer, and in conversation with him, he told me he had two things he wanted to do. He wanted to dance at his son's wedding and he wanted to take his wife on a bucket trip, bucket list trip, excuse me, to the Grand Canyon. And so we worked together over the few months that I got to see him and we accomplished both of those. And that has been one of the proudest moments of my entire career. He came back for his son's wedding and he told me he danced his pants off at his son's wedding. And shortly before he passed, he made it to the Grand Canyon with his wife. And during this time, his function was declining. He was getting weaker. He was in more pain. He was more uncomfortable as things went on. He was losing strength. But the quality of life that we were able to give back to him in some sense is worth every minute of honestly fighting people like this who are saying that these patients do not belong in rehab and shouldn't be exercising and should be resting. All of the major conditions and impairments that patients face as a result of or associated with cancer and or its treatments are directly impacted in a positive way from exercise and from skilled rehab services. End of story. (laughs) I'm not quite clear how you feel about this. Like, it feels very, like, vague. (laughs) Like, do you, like, feel good about what you do? Like, I'm I'm feeling like you're conflicted about your value here. Freaking love what I do. And it is hard. It is beautiful. And honestly, like, those moments outweigh. Because I get the same question, honestly. Like, isn't it sad? Like, yeah, it's sad, but also it is so joyful. And it's not always be like, whoa, I beat cancer. Don't get me wrong. Like, shut down the clinic for a dance party. (laughs) I will do it. But it is the small moments like, it's just these small everyday moments that happen that are so joyous. And to see the control put back in that person's hands for just a little bit is worth it. 
And I just, I really want to leave your listeners with that. Like, if you don't take anything else from this conversation today, like you have such a capacity to make such a difference in that person's existence. Even if you just see them one time, one time in the emergency department, you could be the one professional who helps put the control back in their hands for a little bit of time when cancer does nothing but take and take and take. And you have a responsibility to do that. I like to say that physical therapy, that we're hope bringers, that we make hope visible. But I want to acknowledge you for making hope tangible because you just like picked up my heart and like ripped it open a little bit, put some of that glitter shit inside and then snapped it back together. And now I'm like, God, I'm going to go out there and like change the world. So, geez. So if I'm going to leave you with one thing, it's going to be, geez. (laughs) <laughs> that was very eloquent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I feel like we can just stop now, but I had another question. Oh, no. Hit me with it, girl. Hit me with it. Okay. Now that we're like, we've got our mission and we're, our purpose and our mandate, because we just got our marching orders, we're going to go out there and like give That's people right. their lives back. That's right. I'm in the emergency department. The emergency mm-hmm. has not always been identified, managed, or or like past. It's, it's all evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are emergent red flags that I need to really not miss? I think that's everybody's greatest fear in the ED, right? I'm going to miss something serious. I'm going to miss the emergency. My liability is high. My risk tolerance is also high, but I need to know, I need to know what not to miss. I need it to like jump out at me. I can't be digging for subtle in every single patient that I see. Yeah. In my clinical experience so far, a lot of what I've seen that have turned out to be emergent situations really come down to watching vitals, which I know is probably just going to grind somebody's gear so wrong. Not but an emergency PT, hopefully, because vitals are vital. Vitals are vitals are vital, right? And so I'm thinking back to, oh, actually, there's two that just popped into my head right away. I haven't thought about them in years. I had one patient who came in and she looked decent, but she was working really hard to get from point A to point B in my clinic. And so I'm talking to her and she's like, you know, I've had a headache for a few days, da, 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 da. And, you know, like all these things. And then I checked her blood pressure and she was in crisis. I was like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> hello, 911. And so... And again, the other situation I'm thinking of that was, I mean, like we called the ambulance for this patient and then he went to the emergency department, which, you know, that's where he ended up. But we knew what was going on. The vitals, the vitals, hands down, painted such a clear picture for me. And I would add this in, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't think about when it comes to oncology, because we do know that sometimes medications blunt our physiologic responses. So what I would encourage people to pull in here is a rate of perceived exertion, like a Borg or a modified Borg, because sometimes even if vitals don't paint the the full picture, excuse me, my patient. So the second one I was actually thinking of, he looked not well and his vitals were actually not too far off. But when I pulled in that rate of perceived exertion and told him, you know, please indicate how hard you feel like you're working just sitting here. And when it was like off the chart, okay, 
definitely that helps kind of pull this picture of like, something is not right under the surface here. We need to get a little more help. And so I think if you start with vitals, pull in an RPE, which can tell you a lot of information about just how that person is feeling, that can be a really good indicator of some of the more common like situations that I have run into that have required emergency services for my oncology patients. Okay. So two questions from that. Love that. Yes. What is an RPE that we should be asking these patients to work at? I know it depends. And I think every PT has their like zone of comfort. Agreed. Agreed. But remember, we're like Brad Pitt and Fight Club. So our zone of comfort is wide, especially (laughs) because we've got an entire medical team here. Right. So um, what are we telling people? I'm so glad you asked this question. Yeah. Because I am still, I've told you this before. I am still of the, you have cancer, let me tuck you in, PT. Because I just, I'm weak. Weak. Yeah. Weak. Let me tuck you in. Let me get you a blanket. Oh, are you nauseous? I'm going to just, let me get you something. I don't know what, but I'm going to make it better. Right. Let me rub your feet. Let me give you a little back massage. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to relax here. Uh, You know, that's okay with me. So what am I asking? What, What should I be asking? I'm going to throw it back on. So I actually had Rebecca on my podcast a few months ago and I literally was like, you know what? I've heard something. And then it clicked as you were speaking. I was like, Rebecca said this. So the like, and I say this with intention. I'm not saying this like, ah, throw caution to the wind. You're in the emergency department already. I don't know a better place to be. In terms of if I need help, it's right there. So in general, when I'm working with my outpatient patients who are going through, you know, treatment or maybe they're shortly after they're done with treatment, moderate exercise is truly what is most commonly recommended for a variety of impairments and conditions and side effects for patients who have cancer. And so I typically use the RPE. I think it's technically the modified Borg chart that goes from six to 20. It just works with my brain better. I usually like to keep patients, I know, in the very like 13 to maybe 15 range, which is like pretty moderate exercise right in there. I think that's very appropriate for patients. Now, this is also with the consideration of my patients are not having issues with that, right? If my patient is having trouble getting from the table to the chair without breathing really hard, like that's their moderate exercise, right? But if I can get up and moving and they're feeling good and those vitals are looking, again, those vitals, those vitals are looking good. There's nothing to indicate that we can't do moderate intensity exercise with these patients. I also do, and this is, again, this is a little outpatient. I do vigorous intensity exercise with my patients as long as they can tolerate it in certain situations. But I feel like if you are aiming for that moderate intensity exercise, there's nothing else that is happening that would make you say, I don't know if this is a good idea. That's a great place to be because in general, that's also why we're, that's the range that we're trying to get patients to participate in outside the emergency department, right? Like we want that moderate intensity exercise because we know the health benefits that are associated with that. 
people with cancer need those health benefits too. I would argue that life is also moderate intensity. I think you need to work on some stress management, Rebecca, if your life is moderate intensity. <laughs> children. Okay. Okay. That's why. That's why. No, I mean, like really like it, it, for a lot of people, life is of moderate intensity. I mean, for some people it's not, but I think when you consider all of the factors, you consider the psychosocial stressors patients are under, you consider what they have to do to get through every day. You consider like how hard it can be for some people to get from point A to point B, like Mm -hmm. modern intensity is a real thing. Okay. I can handle that. Like that is an actionable thing that I can do. And I can stress that moderate intensity in the ED while monitoring vitals to make sure that it's actually safe for them to do that at home. I love that. Right. Right. Okay. So then every EDPT, I guarantee wants to know the answer to this question. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. And there's like, there's a board's answer to this. And then there's like a real world answer to this. So we're looking for the latter. Okay, real world. I got it. I real got it. world. In the ED, fast paced, like snapshot, like patients waiting. How in depth and to what extent must we understand every medication and treatment that this patient is getting? Oh my God. No, friend. Like, <laughs> real world answer. There is an outstanding resource that I would encourage everyone to download and save to your computer. It is free and it is literally like it is it is the bible of cancer rehab, okay? So the re- the article is called A Focused Review of Safety Considerations in Cancer Rehab by Maltzer et oh al 2017. Can you tell that I love this article? Oh, yeah. And what I love show notes. Link it, please do. Yeah. That article is I like I have a crush on the article because of how beautiful it is. But one of the things that I love so much about it is that there is a table that has a list of not all the agents, but a lot of the really, really common, you know, chemotherapies and other medications that are used in the management of cancer and their side effects. And so there's that that and what I love about this is that it's a lot of side effects that are relevant to the rehab side of things. Mm. So talking about neuropathy, there's another really great resource out there called chemocare.com, also free. And that has a lot of good information on side effects. It's a great quick resource. I use it all the time when I'm in an evaluation and my patient is telling me, yeah, I'm on this, this, and this treatment. And I say, I've never heard of that before. Let me just go look it up real quick. So I like that because it's very quick reference. But what I like about the Maltzer article is it takes it and applies it a little more to rehab and like kind of the frame that we need to think in if we're asking people to get up and move. So I would really encourage you, those are two free resources, chemocare.com. And then the Maltzer article, A Focused Review, Safety Considerations in Cancer Rehab. Those two resources are excellent places for you to quickly reference when you are in a situation where you have a patient and you're not familiar with that particular cancer treatment, go to those things. If you are in an emergency department situation where maybe you're not seeing patients with cancer that often, you can probably get by with that information. Now, if you are starting to see more patients, and I'm going to challenge you 
dear listener, because I think you're going to see a lot more patients in the future who have cancer or and are coming into the emergency department or a history of cancer. It would be beneficial to spend more time with the more common ones. So one of the most common ones that I see, I see a lot of patients with breast cancer, and that is the most common cancer diagnosis among American women is doxorubicin, right? And this is, I'm not going to teach you all the things, but I know right away, doxorubicin is very cardiotoxic. And so I know I need to be looking out for that in my patient. I know there's other chemos that are really neurotoxic. And so neuropathy is an issue. And so these are some things that you kind of pick up over time if you spend a little time with the material. But again, chemocare.com and the Maltzer article are fabulous, quick references that you can pull up in a GIF. And let's face it, with as fast paced as the emergency department is, you might be good starting with those, friend. We need a GIF. We need it in a GIF. I love that. The uh, ED pharmacist thanks you because that's the resource that I've been using because, and they are an outstanding resource as well. So if you can collaborate with your ED pharmacist, I would highly recommend you do that as well. All right. That is cool. Before I ask you what like your final parting thoughts are, I just like, if you're Mm -hmm. listening to this episode, I would highly encourage you to watch it on YouTube because our facial expressions are like something that I've not yet. um, You know, I just feel like if you and I were out somewhere together, there would be different intermittent times where I would have to lean over and be like, fix your face. And you would have to be like, I can hear your tone of voice on your face. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would highly encourage you to watch the YouTube video because because <laughs> we're an interesting pair of humans. So final thoughts for EDPTs that are listening and they're like scared of taking cancer patients. What do you think? Yeah. I think you've had Dr. Rebecca Seagraves on your podcast previously. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to pull a page from her book because she is... Oh, She is just one of the coolest PTs out there. At the core of the cancer diagnosis and the treatment side effects and the impairments that the patient is facing is a human. Mm -hmm. There is a human in front of you and you have an opportunity to show up and connect with that human in what might be one of the most vulnerable situations they've ever been in. And I think if you can first and foremost show up for the human who is in front of you, everything else will come together. But I think we have to really consider starting every oncology evaluation, every treatment, every interaction with the patient is that there is a human in front of you. And if you can make that human connection first, that is going to get you easily I'm going to say 75 to 80% of the way. Start there and know that you have what it takes to treat a person with cancer. Period. Welcome to the top of your scope. Are you going to take that microphone that you've got there and like pick it up and drop it now or... If I did, I would honestly, I've got so many cords around here. I might just like unplug myself from the wall and then like the interview would be over. So (laughs) no, that's perfect. I think that's, that's really, I posted a quote the other day that said that like really um, the sacred is in the ordinary 
And when we get, yeah, and when we get caught up in like all of these complex diagnoses, I think what we forget is that these patients are ordinary humans and they might have complex circumstances. They might have complex emotions. They might have complex diagnoses, but that we need to treat them at the core as a human and remember that our impact matters and that the sacred is in the ordinary. So that's what I'll leave us with. Uh, How can people find you? Oh my gosh. You can find me on all the social platforms. My handle is the Onco PT, all one word. Um, Like I said, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, X, formerly known as Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then if you're interested in learning a little more about this, if you're excited about the opportunity and the potential to help someone who has cancer, I would really encourage your listeners, Rebecca, to join our free community. It's called the Cancer Rehab Community. We have a really thriving, growing community over there that is composed of cancer rehab professionals and rehab professionals who are excited about cancer rehab, no matter where they're at as far as like how much experience they have. This is, we are curating this into a one-stop shop where you can come and feel supported and get answers to questions like this. Because I know this interview is not going to be the answer to all your questions. Right. Just the We're beginning. grading that for you over at the cancer rehab community. And then you just had a conference, right? With like the first big cancer rehab conference. And I know that was recorded. Can people still like sign up and watch that? Actually, no, but what they can do is they can get on. I know we did a very like limited time situation. You can get on the wait list. So if you go to uh, the oncopt.com slash wait list, that'll direct you over to the wait list for our 2024 conference, which we are already planning and it is going to be mind blowing. I love that. And will be kind of similar format as last year. It will. It's going to be virtual. Um, Don't tell my partner Kelly this, but it's actually going to be a two-day conference now because we are expanding. So you heard it here first, guys. Don't tell Kelly that I said it here, but it's going to be two days. So get excited. Well, (laughs) I haven't announced the date yet, but if you're on the wait list, you'll find out as soon as we do. I felt like the content was like so streamlined, so digestible that I think that particularly if you're if you're like overwhelmed and not sure where to start, this was an amazing place to learn. And I'm sure yeah. people with lots of experience and people like me who had no idea what they were doing there really um, would learn a lot. It was amazing. It was. And again, I think Rebecca is selling herself short here because she also presented at the conference and what I loved about it. And I don't know if you picked up on this, Rebecca, because I can't honestly like it was such a blur. I remember moments and then I also forgot a lot. There were like three sessions that were back to back to back in the mid morning of the conference. And it was you. It was Andrew Chongaway. And I think it was uh, Dr. Patrick Ford, if I'm remembering correctly. And those three topics were completely separate. But all of the speakers built on each other. And Ooh. like Dr. Andrew Chongaway, he's a board certified oncologic clinical specialist like myself. Dr. Patrick Ford is very heavily into um, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion efforts. And you did your thing on burnout. And it was like, I didn't even pay y'all to do it, but everybody just kept building off of each other. And that's what was so cool about the conference is like, yes, it's a cancer rehab conference, but we also went over, how do you be a better therapist? 
Yeah. Yeah. How do you be a better human? And that's what was really, really cool. And you kicked that off. And honestly, I just sat back and was like, this is magic. I could not have planned for. And yet you did. So I think you need to take some credit. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, you were in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.